always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. For the past five months, Irish Times journalist Dan McLaughlin has been covering the war in Ukraine. During that time, more than five million refugees have fled the country, with millions more displaced within Ukraine's own borders. Their homes are unlivable after weeks of bombardment. Now the people of Kharkiv survive by collecting rainwater and cooking on fires fueled by debris. As the weeks and the months pass and the fighting continues, many of those who left are now starting to return. When I was coming in and out of Ukraine in the first weeks and months of the war, many more people were leaving. Many, many more people were leaving. It was absolutely clear from the traffic on the roads, from the, from the size of the tailbacks on the border going into somewhere like Poland. A huge amount of people were leaving. Now it's clear that more people are coming back than are leaving. But what is bringing people back to a country which is still in the throes of a deadly war? For some people it's a decision that our men, whether it's you know sons, brothers, husbands, can't leave the country. Men between 18 and 60 have to stay in Ukraine at the moment. So a lot of women and kids who've gone abroad, they're deciding, let's go back and be with the family again. And others are looking at the situation, looking at somewhere like Kiev and thinking, OK, there's still a risk. Missiles still hit the city. But we think it's worth the risk going back and being at least in our own apartment, being in a place that we know, being having our friends and family network around to help us. Other people have discovered, you know, they may have been in Poland for a month or six weeks, Hungary, Czech Republic, all over the region, and they're just running low on funds. So that in a way, they're being forced to go back even to areas further east and further south that are actually still quite dangerous because they simply cannot afford to stay away. In total, more than two million Ukrainians have made the journey back and the numbers continue to rise. But what exactly are they coming back to? It's still kind of dangerous to go back, but we really wanted to go back home to check on our apartment and the parents, so we're going back. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today... With no end to the war in sight, what does the future look like for Ukrainians as they try to rebuild their lives? Dan, you were back in Ukraine again last week reporting for the Irish Times on the latest in Lviv and in other western parts of the country. Now, you've spent a lot of time on Ukrainian soil this year and you've watched the war evolve and entrench itself in people's lives. So what is life like in Western Ukraine right now, five months on from the Russian invasion? Well, for anyone arriving, um, not knowing the country was at war, you could potentially, for a little while at least, spend time in a city like Lviv, close to the Polish border or in Kiev, the capital, and not be struck immediately, at least, by the fact that this was a country at war. Many more people have come back. So there are many more people out on the streets Many more businesses are open. Now it's, you know, spring and summer. Pavement cafes are out. You know, the squares are busy with people sitting out, having coffees, talking. But if you just listen in on those conversations, you realize instantly that there is nothing else to talk about in Ukraine now. The war absolutely dominates every aspect of the war, where people are, how they're surviving, what's happening to friends and relatives, and of course, talk about the latest attacks, attacks that are still going on uh, every day and every night in different parts of the country. 
And what about then the conflict hotspots in eastern regions of Donbass and Luhansk and in the southern ports along the Black Sea? What do we know about the latest situation there? Well, the focus really since Russia was pushed back from Kyiv and Kharkiv, the two main cities in Ukraine, Russia's focus has been on Donbass, this big industrial region that comprises the Donetsk and Lugansk regions in eastern Ukraine. Both regions border Russia and it's been much easier for Russia to push its forces and its heavy weaponry through directly to the front line there, much easier than it was in other parts of the country. So that's where the focus of fighting has been for probably two months, 10 weeks now. Russia claims to have taken all of Lugansk province and it's taken, we think, about two thirds, probably a half, two thirds of Donetsk province. In the fighting, you know, effectively, cities were being almost leveled. I mean, reduced to largely to ruins. Cities like Severodonetsk, cities like Lysychansk, before that Mariupol. So Russia's using very heavy artillery to blast its way forward. Then only, only once uh, Ukrainian forces have withdrawn, really, does Russia then move infantry in and take over. But what it's taking over, as I say, are these blasted cities. Most people have left these cities and moved to Western Ukraine or safer parts. So they're not taking over very much at all. They're gradually taking over territory, but it's very slow. Down in the south, Russia still has control of most of Kherson province and parts of Zaporizhia province. And when we look at cities like Odessa, Odessa is still under government control. Mykolaiv, just next to it, is still under government control. But these are crucial cities because they're big ports on the Black Sea. And they're being attacked every day and every night by shelling, by missile fire. And these missiles are hitting not only civilian infrastructure, I'm talking about residential areas, but also, for example, grain warehouses. So that's a big issue at the moment, especially on the south coast. There is a Russian naval blockade of the Black Sea, and Ukraine can't get its its grain and its other produce out to world markets. So that's a huge problem economically. And it's a big question for world leaders today as well, not only the war in general, but also how do we get this grain out to to the world to avert potential food crisis in the months ahead. So it seems that Ukraine has become quite divided when it comes to who is suffering directly at the hands of Russian aggression right now. There's, as we've talked about, there's the eastern and southern regions which continue to deal with almost daily bombardments and conflict. And then there's the West, where life has started to return somewhat to normal. Can you describe a little bit more about the steps people in the West are taking in somewhere like Lviv to live their life? What kind of work are they doing? Are they just shopping? Are they just going to the cinema? When you are on the street, you will see lots of people out, see lots of people walking, as I say, you know, having a coffee, chatting, doing their shopping. And compared to the early months of uh, of the or the early weeks of the war, um, in a place like Lviv, Lviv wasn't terribly affected in terms of food supply and things like that. Places like Kiev was a bit more heavily affected and it was very hard to get food in the first few weeks of the war in Kiev because supply was difficult and people weren't just weren't coming into the center of the city because it was dangerous because the Russians were in the suburbs. Now all those basic things are open. You can go and get your food, you can go and do your shopping and things like that. But in terms of making a living, obviously the economy has been massively affected. And lots of people simply don't have work to do anymore. They're normal work. You know, the things they may have been doing, you know, branches of banks have closed down. Um, media's working in completely different ways. Lots of factories can't operate, either because it's dangerous, because infrastructure's been damaged, because they can't get raw materials, things like this. So the economy's taken a massive hit. It means that a lot of people, instead of working in their normal jobs, they're doing voluntary work. 
they're joint they're, they're signing up to uh voluntary organizations to um source supplies for civilians to source supplies for the military they're doing deliveries they are learning about first aid they're going and doing things that they think in some way or another will help with the war effort so people are trying to stay busy they're trying to do things but in a lot of cases they're not doing anything that for them is is profitable in a monetary way Dan, have you spoken to many people who have returned to Ukraine from another European country and who have decided to take the risk of being in their home country rather than waiting out the uncertainty of this war in a far off place? Yeah, that's that, that's one of the first things I do now, really, on the way back into Ukraine. You know, I'm usually getting a bus across from from Poland. And so I talk to people on the bus, you know, why are they why are they heading back? And and it's interesting to see how busy those Polish bus stations are also bus stations in Romania, in Moldova, in other countries close to close to Ukraine with people going home. Some have said, we've just decided to go back because we want to get the family together again, because our, our men can't leave. So either they're fighting or they're doing other things in the country, unable to go out, and they've decided to chance it and go back. Others have said it's just unsustainable. You know, we can't afford to live in a Polish city anymore. This is this is anecdotal. I don't know the details of these particular programs that the con- these different countries have introduced, but I've heard that Poland has started to reduce or even cut the help that it's giving to Ukrainian refugees. I heard the same from people traveling from Bulgaria. They said they're no longer getting the help with housing that they had before. So you hear these these stories all over the place and you know we're only in what the 6 month i think it is now of a war that could go on for many many months so yes people people are coming back but not altogether willingly and they're coming back also with fear because they see uh, cities far from the front line especially in the last 10 days or so being hit by cruise missiles you know we saw a shopping center in kremenchuk we saw a medical center in vinitsa dozens of people killed just in these individual attacks so nowhere is really safe i mean Speaking from personal experience, just last week or a couple of weeks ago, when I moved from traveled from Lviv to Kiev, I arrived, I think, on a Saturday. The Sunday morning, I was woken up by explosions in Kiev. Opened the curtains, and probably I don't know five, six, seven kilometers away, plumes of smoke were rising from a residential building that had been hit by cruise missiles. Three cruise missiles hit, and as I was watching, another plume of smoke went up as a fourth cruise missile hit this building. And that's in a very central area of Kyiv. So even there, no one can feel entirely safe. Over the last few months, Dan, we've regularly heard statistics about the latest death toll in cities across Ukraine. And uh, the UN currently says more than 5,000 civilians have died in the war so far. But meanwhile, thousands of people are being seriously injured in this conflict. And as is often the case in war, They've almost become the forgotten casualties because they must continue living their lives, but in a world that is totally transformed for them because of their injuries. How is Ukraine coping with the unprecedented number of civilians who have suffered these life-changing injuries since February? I mean, it it is extremely difficult. Um, Speaking to doctors in different cities, Kiev, Odessa, Lviv, Kharkiv, it is very, very tough. A lot of doctors nurses, other medical staff have had to switch from doing their their normal work, treating normal, you know, civilian everyday medical problems to dealing with horrendous injuries, whether that's people suffering on the soldiers being injured on the front line, or it's people being injured in these missile 
attacks that are still taking place in cities across the country. You know, even in Lviv, you know, a thousand kilometers from the front line, just about missiles have hit. And in certain instances, dozens of people have been injured. Speaking to doctors in Lviv, they were saying that they're, they're cooperating with colleagues from countries like Britain and the United States, where military doctors and surgeons have experience of injuries in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. But they're saying that still, even these surgeons and doctors, some of them don't have experience of injuries like they're seeing in Ukraine now, because you've got two very powerful, very well-armed forces taking each other on, using very, very heavy weaponry. And often, as we've mentioned, these weapons, these missiles, these shells, long-range cruise missiles are striking residential buildings, they're striking medical centers, they're striking um, shopping centers. So... It's not just the, the number of casualties, but also the severity um, of the injuries being suffered. And for many of them, these are life-changing injuries. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of amputees in Ukraine now, just from the last five months or so of conflict. And you recently spoke to a young woman in her early 30s called Oksana Hearn from Huliaipolia, a frontline town in southeastern Ukraine, and she lost her leg two months ago after a mortar hit her back garden. When you spoke to her, she was waiting in western Ukraine for a prosthetic leg. Can you tell me a bit about what happened to her? Yeah, I met Oksana in a, in a hospital in Lviv, where she's been for about a month now. And she told me, she recounted what happened that day uh, in May when she was hit in her back garden. She said she was just gardening. There was no warning. There was no air raid siren, there were no other explosions or no sign of anything when suddenly she was thrown to the ground. She covered her ears, when she uncovered them she heard other explosions and she realised that she couldn't feel her legs. I felt like a burning sensation, my, my, my legs burned. Neighbours came out, they rushed to her, called an ambulance, bandaged up her legs, and as it turned out, she had did have very bad burns to her legs and shrapnel wounds, and she lost the lower half of her, the lower part of her right leg. So after about a month of treatment and several operations in Zaporizhia, which is the nearest government-controlled city to Juliapolia, she was moved to Lviv for more rehabilitation. She's doing physio now and rehab, and she's just waiting for it to find out where she can go. She thinks she's going to have to go abroad to perhaps Poland or a neighbor, another neighboring country because the, the demand for these things now, unfortunately, terribly, as a result of this war, is so, so high in Ukraine. When we mentioned the fighting in Donbass a little bit earlier, Ukrainian officials have said recently that it, maybe a 100 soldiers are being killed every day on that front line. And hundreds, maybe up to 500 soldiers are being injured each day on that front line. And as you can imagine, with the heavy shelling that's taking place, a lot of those are very, very serious in injuries. Many of those soldiers will also be amputees now. They will also need prosthetics. So this is a, a major problem now and for years to come for Ukraine. Dan, you also spoke to Hinat Herit. She was the head of the surgical department at the St. Pantelemon Hospital in Lviv who is also expected to become the chief surgeon at the new state-of-the-art National Rehabilitation Centre called Unbroken. What did Hinat tell you about how doctors, nurses and other medical staff have been coping over the past five months? He said it has been very difficult. He was very proud of his team for having basically learnt on the job to deal with these really, really difficult battlefield injuries, effectively. Hanat told me that he has high hopes for this rehabilitation center, the one that you mentioned, which will be called Unbroken. After the war finished, and even when the war is going, 
we have a lot of patients that need the first is reconstructive surgery that uh, we need the rehabilitation and the third a lot of this patient need the social mental uh, rehabilitation and also need the prosthetics and with unbroken you could do that in one center that's what you need unbroken we can do this in one center we need for that the specific place the specific Lviv and Ukrainian ministries are now trying to raise something like 70 million euros to build it. And it will be, as he described to me, uh, a state-of-the-art integrated rehabilitation center where people can come and they can stay in one place to have their surgery, to have their physio, to have their rehab, the whole thing in one place. And he said that's what Ukraine needs, but actually Ukraine needed it. They need it now. They needed it yesterday because all these people are coming back. It will be a national rehabilitation center, but I'm sure that they will need, definitely Ukraine will need more than one of these in the years going forward to deal with this, this medical and psychological legacy of, of the war. Coming up, as summer turns into autumn, is there an end in sight for the war in Ukraine? Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Taking things back to Russia for a minute, what has Putin been saying about his plans going forward? What are we hearing from the Kremlin itself in recent weeks about what they see happening? The Kremlin just continues to say that all the aims of what it calls the special military operation will be achieved. But the, the way it's talking about this operation has clearly changed as the war has progressed. Because when, while initially Russian state media, Russian officials were extremely bullish, they seemed to have the idea that they would take Kiev very quickly, Zelensky would probably flee, the Ukrainian armed forces would largely fold, and occupation of most or all of the country would proceed very quickly in weeks, if not in days. When this didn't happen, the messaging changed. So now Russian media and officials effectively say that this is Russia fighting NATO on Ukrainian territory. This is how they explain the fact that the Ukrainian military has managed to stop the lauded Russian military and that a victory did not come along as quickly as the Kremlin predicted. So this is how they portray it now, that this is a, this is a, a defensive and a preemptive operation to make sure that NATO does not attack Russia from Ukraine. This will continue, and this is the way that the Kremlin hopes to ensure public support for this operation, I think, by saying that, well, if we don't do it in Ukraine, this war will come to you. This war will come to Russia. What Putin has stopped short of doing so far is a mass mobilization. This would be a major escalation from the Russian side. But that is something that may become necessary if... 
predictions that Russia is getting falling short of manpower through all the injuries and losses that they've suffered over the past few months. If those come true, then Russia may have to have a mobilization. And how the Russian public will react to that, to their men being effectively forcibly drafted and taken to Ukraine to fight, is a different question. Then the, uh, the Kremlin narrative may face more pushback from the Russian people. But at the moment, we're not really seeing any major demonstrations of public opposition in Russia to the Kremlin narrative and the Kremlin invasion. Новая лада куплена на то, что в народе называют гробовыми, а официально единовременным пособием семье погибших. Dan, last week, Russian State TV ran a news report which spoke of how a Russian family were able to buy a brand new car using the money that they'd received after their son was killed in the Ukraine war. It feels like a very unusual and frankly disturbing approach for the media to take. What do Russian people even think about this kind of messaging or or do we know? We don't really know um, and that is an astonishing clip I think which just shows that the it shows a few things I mean the deep cynicism of of Russian state media uh, but it also gives you a bit of a glimpse as to the, the the desperation of many people out in the provinces in Russia how tough it is to make a living how a lot of people are going away to fight not just joining the Russian army, but joining these private military companies, as they're called. The best-known one is, is called the Wagner Group, who are offering good money by Russian standards to people to go and fight as mercenaries in Ukraine. So they will find a, a deep pool of people who, just for economic reasons, if not for patriotic reasons, or not because they've been convinced by the propaganda, will go to fight in Ukraine to provide money for their families. You know, the... Vast swathes of Russia, you know, I spent three months there at the at the end of last year, are still very, very poor, economically to deprived, quite desperate places. Mm. And when you talk about the compensation there, it's, it is just horrendous to see the father of this guy saying, well, you know, look what you can do with the compensation money if your son doesn't come back. I mean, he even goes as far as to say he always dreamed of a car like this. He always wanted a white car. So we got a white car. And the car's first journey will be to the cemetery. I mean, it's such a grim clip. Mm. But it is indicative of, of certain things in Russia. This is also perhaps another reason why we're not seeing and hearing more complaints from the Russian public. Because we've heard lots of accounts of families, not just now, but earlier in the war, about families being threatened by the authorities in Russia. That if they go public on what's happened to their, their relative that was killed, if they ask questions about it, if they go to the media or demand to know more about what's happened, they will lose that compensation and they will effectively be ostracized and they will be economically cut off. And for a lot of families, you know, that is a lifeline. They've lost the breadwinner in the family. They will rely on that compensation and that continued support from the Russian state. So, you know, the Putin regime also has these very strong economic levers to keep down and silence any kind of dissent that might appear. So looking forward, Dan, as summer turns into autumn, where do we think this war is going? The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has warned it could last for years, but then other Western intelligence agencies have said Russia's combat capabilities could be depleted within months. So what do you think? Is, is there an end in sight? Unfortunately, I don't think there is an end in sight. Um, we're seeing the Russia's advance in Donbass... It was always slow, but it seems to be getting even slower. 
because Ukraine now has uh, longer range, more accurate, more mobile Western rocket systems, which can do severe damage. And are, they, these systems are doing severe damage to Russian supply lines. Almost every day now we wake up to footage on Ukrainian media and on social media showing Russian ammunition stores, ammunition dumps well behind the front lines being blown up. And these inevitably will have an attritional effect on Russia's ability to keep moving forward. So in Donbass, it's moving very slowly. In further south, in the Kherson region, Ukraine says it's taking back territory slowly and that some Russian troops are being redeployed to the Kherson and Zaporizhia region to prevent a more uh, dramatic Ukrainian counterattack. So I think we're going to see very slow movement in the east and the south. The thing is, is Russia ready to give up? And I think it's impossible for Russia to give up. It's impossible for Putin to say this has been a failure and to call his troops back. So he may try to take the rest of Donbass and then call for some kind of talks, say, okay, this is a time when we can reach some kind of agreement. But when you look at the Ukrainian side, there is absolutely no way at the moment that Ukraine will agree to this. There is no indication that Ukraine is willing to give up territory in return for peace. In the latest opinion polls, more than 80% of Ukrainians said there should be no territorial concessions in return for peace because they've seen what is happening to people living under occupation. They've seen the atrocities, they've heard of the torture, the deportations to Russia. Ukraine is convinced that it can win this as long as it gets the right Western support in the right quantities. So Ukrainians say, we're fighting for our lives, we have nowhere else to go. This is our country and we will, def we will defend it and fight for it as long as we can. And we can win as long as we have help to do so. Dan McLaughlin, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot. That's all for today. My thanks to our guest, Dan McLaughlin. Today's episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan. In the News will be back on Friday.